Some of you may have the same issue with Father's Day that I do. It's saying Happy Father's Day to women. I say Happy Father's Day from a lady, and I say You too. Man, that's thank you is the right response. <clears throat> Uh, I, I actually became a father uh, in part to pull teeth out of people's faces because I missed doing that as a kid, you know, wiggling teeth. And so my, my daughter actually has a loose tooth and I've never seen this before where a tooth comes in before the tooth is, comes out. I like, that's, wow, that's weird. We got to pull that tooth out quick, you know, but it's just not coming out. And then last, yesterday I came home and every, our house was chaos. Uh, my wife was in the four, floor cuddling one of our children with a paper cloth, wet, wet towel in his mouth. She says, uh, your two-year-old head-butted, and our two-year-old does have a huge head, big melon. And he head-butted our four-year-old, and now he's got two loose teeth. And so I'm, can I pull that out? Should I pull that out? Do you want to pull that out? No. Don't pull it out. So happy Father's Day. I have two teeth to pull when I get home. Uh, So I want to set up some of our time today. What we're going to be talking about is is joyful obedience today. Um, And just to give you some some clarifying um, ways to read Scripture, there are usually patterns, literary patterns designed into the text so that you can more fully understand where the author is going. And so the literary pattern that 1 Samuel uses is an uh, an upward arc, or sorry, a a downward arc associated with one character, and then an upward arc associated with another character. And so what we saw in the first chapter is uh, you're introduced to Hannah and Paniah. And Paniah in that story is the bad character. She's the verbally abusive sister wife, right? And then you have Hannah, which is on an upward arc towards following and dedicating her life and her children to God. And then right after that, you're introduced to Eli and his sons, and they are clearly on a downward arc, right? And then Samuel is introduced as the upward arc of God raising up someone to take the place of the person who is currently failing at their job. And so last week, we've been focused on Saul becoming the king, right? And it went well for him in the beginning, right? He went out to war. He conquered some things. uh, But as of late, uh, things aren't going so well for him. And so the, the, what we're going to see today is actually two different stories that uh, model an upward arc, a following of God, uh, displaying obedience to Him for His glory and His purposes. And so we're actually looking at chapters 14 to 17. And we're going to look at first chapter 14, which is a story of Jonathan. And then we're going to look at chapter 17. Both of these stories are stories about someone being obedient to the Lord. Uh, And so I I actually noticed last week, Aaron said in his message, I I hate to do this to you again. So my hope today is that 
This message is actually hopeful and joyful to you, that obedience is not another Christian four-letter word that we don't want to talk about, right? Like, submission, again, I got to repent. No, no, no. Obedience is actually for our good. It actually leads to a life that we can't even imagine put together ourselves. And so it's joy that we're shooting for. But right in the middle of chapters 14 and 17, you have a, uh, another story of a person that is doing exactly the opposite. So we're going to look at 14 and 17 together, and then at the end we'll look at uh, how disobedience is exactly the opposite of obedience. So Aaron left off last week with Jonathan attacking a garrison and the Philistines mounting a horde army to come to Israel and attack them, right? Says that they they can't number the army because it's as many as the sand of the sea. And it's actually sitting in Benjamin's territory, the Benjaminite territory. It's what's funny about this story is that uh, chapter 14 starts off by saying that Jonathan is looking at this army and he's in the camp with Saul. And the funny thing that Saul is doing in the, in the camp is he's hanging out with Ichabod's brother. Remember Ichabod? Ichabod's the son that died in the line of Eli, right? Eli died, his son died, and then their, their son died. This is three-part death, right? And Saul is hanging out in the camp with his brother, who is also wearing an ephod, (laughs) which means that he's portraying to be a priest, right? And so Saul is sitting there, and he's trying to calculate, okay, there's this army horde that's facing us. All my men have left me. I just have 600 left. How am I going to go about defeating this army? And Jonathan looks over, and he says, I'm just going to go attack him. This is the second time he's going to go attack him. So he looks at his armor bearer and he says, hey, what do you think? Should we go over there and attack this army? And the armor bearer says, sure, whatever you want to do, let's do it. And so Jonathan says to his armor bearer, okay, okay, so we're going to go show ourselves to the army. And if they invite us up, then we'll go. We'll know that the Lord has given them into our hands. And if not, then we'll back away. If they say, no, stay where you're at, we'll come to you, we'll leave. And so they climb this rock, and Jonathan pokes his head up, and the Philistines say, hey, look, the cowards that were hiding in holes have come out. (laughs) And they say, come up here. We want to show you something. And Jonathan looks back at his armor bearer and says, we got him. So he takes off. He says, come after me. He takes off. Jonathan goes. uh, And by the way, he, he didn't tell anyone in Saul's camp that he was going. It was just him and and Jonathan and his armor bearer are just out there by themselves. No one knows where they are. They go up and they confront this, this army and they kill 20 of them immediately. It says they fall before Jonathan and the armor bearer comes behind him. Remember, it's only two swords in Israel. One of them is his armor bearer and he starts slaughtering them. 20 men from the Philistine army die in an acre of land. And then the text says that The entire army that's there started to tremble. The Philistines start to tremble. So much so that the earth started to quake. And it created this panic. 
and the whole army. And they actually started to fight themselves and kill themselves. And Saul looks over and says, what, what's happening? Uh, they're fighting. There's some kind of disturbance there. Let's, what are we supposed to do? And he, he calls Ichabod's brother and says, hey, get the ark. Bring it over here. Let's see what we can do. Uh, he's just indecisive, doesn't know what to do. And he says, oh, just, just go fight. Leave the ark alone. Just go fight. Uh, and so they, they're just slaughtering these people. Philistines are, are running out. And then they get to the end of that day, and it says that the Lord saved Israel that day because of Jonathan's actions. So they go into the forest, and the men of Israel see this honey dripping down onto the ground, and yet they refuse to eat it. It's earlier that day, 1 Samuel 14, 24, Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. And so Jonathan walks into the same forest and sees this promise that God has given them. Remember, back in the day, I'm going to bring you to a land that's flowing with milk and honey, and quite literally, it is now. And he sticks his staff into the honey and takes a bit of it. And the men of Israel say, the troops say, Ah, Saul made us promise that we wouldn't eat until he was avenged. Now you're going to you're going to be cursed. He's like, I wasn't there. I didn't, I didn't take part in that oath. What are you talking about? And so that night, Saul says to his leaders, his troops, he says, hey, let's not stop here. Let's actually go and utterly destroy, wipe out the Philistines completely. And they say, whatever you want to do. And Ichabod's brother, the priest, says, hey, why don't we ask God what he wants us to do? And Saul says, I mean, I guess, I guess we could do that. And they ask the Lord, and he doesn't respond. Just waiting in silence for him to say something. And Saul determines that someone has sinned in his troop. And so they start to cast lots. He says, uh, all of the men go over there, and me and my son will be over here, and we're going to cast lots between you and I. You, your group and us, and that lot falls on Saul and Jonathan. And then he says, oh, oh okay, let's, let's cast lots again. Um, somebody's going to have to die for this, um, for this sin so that we can move forward. Uh, and so they cast lots again, and it falls on Jonathan. And Jonathan says, well, I, I guess I ate the honey, so I guess I'm going to have to die. And all of the troops look on Jonathan and say, what, what are you talking about? They actually say, say this. It says, um, this in 1445, it says, Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. See, Jonathan went and did exactly what he expected the Lord to do in his life through him. And then those actions actually are the thing that saved them. And that chapter ends with um, Saul returning home and the Philistines going their own way. Then you have chapter 15, which we'll get back to later.
Chapter 16 is about David being anointed to be king. And then you come to chapter 17, and the Philistines are back with a vengeance, right? And this, this, this text is like so well known, right? David going up against Goliath. So David, uh, David is, is at home being a shepherd, and his dad says, hey, uh, I want you to go and um, get a report back from our brothers. You have three brothers on the front lines, El- Eliab, uh, Abinadab, and Shema. Go and, and get a report and take these provisions to them. And so John, uh, David goes out and he takes the provision. And as, as he's approaching, uh, they're forming battle formations on the front lines. The people of Israel against the Philistines. And he finds his brothers and he's, he says, hey, how's it going? And then he hears this thunderous voice cursing Israel this man standing there defying Israel and all his troops. He looks over. A nine-foot-tall warrior. It's like from the ground up here, you know. That's a big dude. He's also wearing 200 pounds worth of armor, and he's carrying a a staff with a 25-pound spearhead on it. This guy is a warrior of warriors, right? And he calls out to Israel. He says, come fight me. If you defeat me, I'll be your slave. If I defeat you, you and all your people will be our slaves. And the men of Israel flee. They're just terrified. And someone in the camp tells David and says, hey, if, if any man who kills this guy is going to be richer than anyone in our nation... It's going to get the king's riches. He's also going to get the king's daughter, and he won't have to pay taxes. That sounds like a pretty good deal, right? I'll take that. David's response, 1 Samuel 17, 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for this man who kills the Philistines and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that should defy the armies of the living God? What David is saying there is, who cares about the reward? Why are we sitting here waiting? Don't you realize that we have a living God in our midst that will protect us against whomever shows up to defeat us? And yet here we are, scared of this nine-foot-tall nothing. And so Saul actually catches wind of David's remarks and says, uh, bring that guy over here. We need, we need to have him come and uh, investigate what, what, what is it you're saying? And so David comes and he says to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. No hesitation. Was it the youth say? No cap? Saul says, you can't. Who are you? you? You can't fight this guy. You're just a young kid. I mean, you have nice looking eyes, but you're short. You're young. Whatever. David says, no, no, no. I'll go. I'll go. So Saul puts his armor on him, weighs him down. 
David says, I can't, I can't fight like this. Throws the armor off, picks up a couple stones, turns to Saul and he says, this is, this is one of the most epic responses in all of scripture. He says, I don't know why you're scared of this guy. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. David's already fought off lions and bears. And he knows the power of God that's with him. So David heads out to the battle line and Goliath approaches and he says, what are you doing with that stick? Are you going to chase me off like a dog? He's just got a slingshot, right? David says to him, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom have whom you have defied. David takes one swing, buries a rock between his eyes. Goliath falls. He runs over and grabs his sword. This is the part that's not in the children's books. Grabs David's, or David grabs Goliath's sword, takes it and hews his head off, hacks his head off and takes his head and holds it up. Facing Israel. Ha <laughs> ha. Here we go. Turns around and the Philistines are watching and they start running. David takes the head home along with the armor, puts it in his tent, and King Saul says, Who is that guy? I need to know. My question is, are these two stories special, unique stories in Scripture, or are they commonplace? Should we expect them to be special stories that we hear from some wild, faith-filled person, or should they be stories that we carry? And how do we go about if that is true, if that's true for me, if I, if I can display that kind of obedience and that kind of faith in my life, how do I, how do I get there? First step. First step is that obedience knows the miraculous power of God saying that's the first step that seemed like the last step for David and for Jonathan it's not true what I mean by that is that they they know God David and Jonathan know the living God and the number one way that we can know the living God is through his word through these pages See, this is actually what just happened. I told you a miraculous story, and you have a choice. Do I actually believe that the God of heaven and earth 
can do those things. Did he do those things? And so saying yes to God is as easy as believing he is who he says he is. Do I actually believe the words of this text? This is how it happened, probably for David and Jonathan. See, back in chapter 12, Samuel addresses all of the people, and he tells them, this is how, this is, these are the testimonies of our God leading us up out of Egypt. Chapters uh, 12, 14, and 15 says this. Samuel is addressing the, cl- the crowd. He says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you. Jonathan and David hear that, and they say, okay, I'm going to choose to believe what God says, who God says he is to our nation. As Jonathan is going out to fight the Philistines, he tells his armor bearer, this is 14 verse 6, he says, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Do you remember the story that we just read where God diminished the number of Israel's army to the point where they were all terrified and then comes mightily through wiping out the Moabites? That's Gideon. Jonathan knows the story. This is what just happened in our nation. And now I'm going to do it again. David hears the taunt of Goliath and says, we have the living God with us. What's going to stop him? David's God is alive and with him. And so right now, in relationship to obedience to God's word, in relationship to to the word, our scriptures, the Bible, we as a collective have to determine, are we going to obey his word? Are we going to trust that this is true and live our lives like it's true? What are you doing with that? Is it real to you? Do you take his word for what it says? So it starts with God's miraculous power, which is evidenced through his word. And then we have a choice. Obedience calls us to action. See, obedience is is going. It isn't an assignment so much as it's taking a step forward in the things that you know God wants to do. Jonathan doesn't wait for his dad to say, yeah, we've cast the lots, we've got the ark in the right place. He just says, I'm going to go do the thing that God's calling us to do without anybody knowing us. And I'm going to do it with so few 
that it's going to absolutely require the power of the living God to come through. And that's exactly what happens. David says, let no man's heart fail because of that guy. I'll go. Your servant will go. One of the privileges that I have uh, at Church on the Rock is to uh, form house church ministries. Uh, And the reason that that's uh, a privilege to me is because house churches and small groups have been such a part of my transformation into knowing God that I want other people to experience what I've experienced. And what I experienced was uh, coming into someone's home and sharing a meal with them. Actually, it was one of the pastors from our uh, church back in Columbia. Uh, And the way that it went was uh, we pretty much cooked bacon every week, right? And that's what initially drew me in. It's like, I want to be a part of this, this, this thing. As long as we're cooking meats, you know, and bacon is always on the, on the menu, I'll, I'll be here. Uh, <clears throat> but in the course of that night, I'm, I met guys my own age that I'd never, I'd never met, never had any conversations like this, where guys were talking about God as if he was real. And not in a way of, 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 of them saying, God is so mad. If you don't get this right, you need to change your ways, right? It was, a, it was a, man, God is so sweet and tender to me. And he meets me in, in my day-to-day. And I'm like, I'm thinking, what? I, this is not the God I've ever heard of, right? And so I actually ended that first night by saying, they asked me if they could pray for me. And I was like, nah, I'm good. You guys are, you guys are a little crazy. But I came back the next week because the bacon, you know? <laughs> and something started to happen. The pastor was there and he was asking me these questions. Why do you believe what you say you believe? Why do you call yourself a Christian? I don't actually, now that you're saying it, I'm not sure. I, I mean, you're a pastor and you're asking me this question. I don't, you obviously know the right answer. You don't need me to tell you the answer. And so I started reading scripture, and I came, I started Matthew, obviously, uh, and I got to the Sermon on the Mount, and God just broke through, showing me his, his goodness, him chasing me down. And I went back to that group, and I was like, guys, we can't just, we can't just meet here every week and eat bacon. We, we actually have to like go serve people and tell them that the living God is real. And I will never forget my pastor's response. He said, I, I can't get these guys to do that. They won't go. They won't go serve in a homeless shelter instead of cook bacon in their house. What? A week after that was Easter. Uh, and a week after that, there were two homeless guys that showed up to the Easter service and then came to our house church. And I was like, what? Okay, we didn't go to the homeless people. You brought them to us. That's insane. I mean, you can, you can think there's coincidences, but that in my book, there's no way that's a coincidence. And then the week after that, guess what? <laughs> I just said... 
I don't know what I'm doing, but this guy that's homeless, I'm going to invite him to live in my home. (laughs) And my parents thought, what are you doing? This guy's going to rob you in the middle of the night and take all your stuff. Like, you're going to take all my stuff on a bike? No. This guy became my disciple maker because he knew the Lord. I named my third child after him. Javi, you can't make this up. I didn't need to wait. I knew that God's miraculous power, this is real, this is true. I'm just going to go do the things that he's called me to. a crazy story. A lot of Christians say that can't wait till we get back to the Acts church where we're all giving each other our possessions and God's power is mightily moving in us and through us. God's not waiting There's no problem on God's end. It's on our end. It's taking this step. It's not waiting to go. It's taking action. You said you're real. Now I go, right? 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him called us to his own glory and excellence. So you have God's word, his miraculous power, and then you take a step. And no matter what happens in that step, the outcome of you taking that step is you experiencing through your obedience his victory. Because of his power, because of him working through you, you get to see him do something miraculous in your life and then see the spoils of that. That's true for Jonathan and for David. Jonathan stands before his dad who's about to commit him to murder and all of the people say, you can't kill him. Look at what he just did, right? But not only that, he's actually walking out what God's word says. It says that that he defeats the enemy and then he takes part in the provision that God lays before him. A land flowing with milk and honey. And of course, David stands there with the head of the enemy, victorious, right? Taking home, who knows what 200 pounds worth of bronze is worth in that day, but it's probably not a little bit. You're saying to me right now, God doesn't always give me victory in every area of my life. Here's my response to that. I think you're looking for the wrong outcome. See, it's not just that David holds the head or Jonathan drinks the honey. It's that they have this 
this story of God using them in this mighty way and God, God moving in their lives. We sat across this, this, the, from the couple, some of you might remember the Dick and Doreen, the missionaries to Turkey, the guy that slapped his wife's bottom, remember that? And they had all these crazy stories. You're too old for that, remember? Uh, all these crazy stories about God bringing provision for their work in Iran. People just, money showing up out of nowhere. And I knew right then, that's your story. I actually want to know what that's like. So we went through the process of pursuing ministry and raising our own support. And I can't tell you that there's anything harder that I've ever done besides being a dad. <laughs> uh, but man, in our culture today, it's so, it, it's so backwards to ask someone for money, <laughs> right? As a man, you are supposed to make your own way. And yet, I'm standing here on the other side of that with all these stories, just like they had, of God miraculously coming through and providing for my family. I want that for you. And the only pathway for you to get there is through obedience, through knowing his word, through taking action and experiencing his victory. And his victory will never be in vain if the outcome that you're looking for is to do it with him. The last point is this, that obedience leads to greater influence. Certainly been the case for me. God taking, using me, allowing me to take a step. And he says, okay, you took that step, now let's take one more, right? You see that in Jonathan's case, he, he defeats the, the garrison first and foremost. And Jonathan says, oh, you, you did it, you did it, I can do it again, right? And so earlier in the chapter, and then again he does it in 14, and David's going to continue to do that. Step out to make a way. The greatest part of that is that it's not just some old story anymore. Your influence is impacted because it's your experience with God on top of this. The miraculous story isn't someone else's. It's not from decades ago. It's from your life. You have walked it. You've experienced the hardship, the feeling that you are going to take a step into nothingness. If God doesn't come through, I am completely screwed. And it's through that, God says, I'm going to use you more because you took one step and look what we did quickly chapter 15 you have an example 
of Saul's disobedience. Samuel approaches Saul and he says, hey, uh, I have an assignment from the Lord. This is the directive. Go and defeat the Amalekites. And he says, okay. I said, no, 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 this is the qualifier. You have to utterly wipe out every single thing of theirs. People, possessions, every single thing. Saul says, okay. They go and defeat them. And after the war, it says, uh, 1 Samuel 15, 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So they kept for themselves what is good, and everything else they got rid of. Samuel comes back. He says, what have you done? Saul says, I did exactly what the Lord said to do. I wiped everything out, and now I'm going to sacrifice everything else to the Lord. That's not exactly what we talked about. You were supposed to wipe everything out. Actually, Samuel says, if you did exactly what the Lord told you to do, what is this bleeding in my ear? The, the noise of not bleeding, bleating, the baa of the sheep. It's a great response. Samuel says this in response to Saul. But the people took the spoil Sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction and to sacrifice them to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel says, has the Lord your God as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as an iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you for being king. See, Saul's disobedience is what disqualifies him from being king. And so essentially, disobedience is just another way of saying sin. He chooses his own way. He goes about life doing it however he pleases, even though the assignment from the Lord is clear. Do exactly this. And yet the example of Jonathan and David is, I don't need to wait on an assignment. I'm just going to go do the things that God's called me to Can you go to uh, the last slide, please? These are a few examples of what obedience looks like today. You know that there are um, three foster care families on the entire peninsula? Three. And they all happen to be in Homer. Now, that doesn't mean that Homer doesn't need more. Evangelism, adoption, caring for the least of these, widows, visiting prisoners, forgiving enemies, giving sacrificially. We're not trying to kill Goliath here, right? We're trying to obey the Lord and what he's commanded us to do, to follow him know him, to put him on display. And I'm telling you right now, 
There is no greater joy than you sharing your own story of his miraculous power, not just from his word, but in your life. As we begin to worship, several ways for you to respond. I have some prayer team members over here. You can give, take communion together. Come to the Lord and ask him to help you believe his miraculous word and then take a step into a place where you know if he doesn't show up, I'm going to fall flat on my face. See what happens. Father, I thank you for your word, for your trustworthiness, your faithfulness to us. I ask God that you would move mightily in us to impact our lives and the lives of those at Homer and around the world. In Jesus' name. Honestly, it's always a joy. <clears throat> you face a great danger. And that is that you would walk out these doors this morning and forget. I'll be honest with you. I'm ashamed to admit this as your pastor, but I'm actually really good at that. I walk out the door and forget. So what is the next step? What's that risky obedience? Is it saying yes to him for the first time? Saying, God, I'm all in. I look to you. I need you. Maybe the first step, maybe the first step is baptism. We could make a day of it. Maybe it's something else. Can you do me a favor? Can we just hang here? Let's take just a moment. Can you just close your eyes? just ask the Lord. Say, Lord, I don't want to miss it. Whatever it is, whatever that step of obedience, that action, show me and give me the grace. So thankful for the, the kindness and the gentleness with which you lead us into your ways and for the constant invitation, the daily renewal of mercy. Just say thank you. I'm going to ask our prayer ministry partners if you guys can just stay for a couple of minutes. If you want prayer for any reason uh, as we close up, uh, just head right over and, and have someone pray for you. Uh, Take that step uh, this morning. If you are currently ex experiencing food insecurity and you don't know where your next meal is coming from or next meals, come and talk to any of our staff. We have a gift for you. Uh, picnics at two o'clock. Bring a side. Uh, we'll have burgers and hot dogs uh, for everyone. Uh, come join in the fun. If you can stick around, we don't officially end until 1230. Uh, it's a big boost to our teardown teams if you stick around for a few minutes and help uh, pick up chairs and such. Uh, anything else I'm forgetting? I think that's everything. God bless you. May his peace be upon you. You're dismissed.